If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 32, that's where we're going to be this morning. <clears throat> and I know that we've already heard this uh, read once this morning, but I think it's, it's only going to do us good to read it again. Um, so I know you just sat down, but would you stand as we read God's word? Psalm 32. A Maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You may be seated. The first four verses of this psalm present two different situations. In the first two verses, there's the blessing of forgiveness But in verses 3 and 4, we see the curse of unforgiveness. We see the curse that happens when our sins are not forgiven. And this reminds us, as you see on the top of your notes page there, that our sin creates a barrier between God and us. And far too often, we withdraw and we hide ourselves from him rather than, than going to him and being forgiven and experiencing his gracious forgiveness and his steadfast love. Too often we hide ourselves from him rather than running to him. And so let me tell you a story. This is a story of when I was a teenager, probably about 17 or 18 years old. And um, I had been on a hunting trip with my dad and and other relatives uh, on on his side of the family down in Oregon. And um, I think I was around college age, either late high school or early college age, and I had my own car. I had a 1996 Honda Accord. And I drove that up there, even though there's the gravel roads and everything, drove it up to camp. Um, But I had to leave early to get back for school. And so I headed down the mountain. And what does every teenage guy with a car love to do on windy gravel roads in his Honda Accord? He likes to try and drift. I think I had seen too many Fast and the Furious movies. Um, And so I thought I would have some fun. And so I'd get up some speed, and what do you do? You just pull the e-brake, and you slide around the corner, right? I want a disclaimer, don't try this at home, okay? Um, you'll see why. So one of those curves, I, I did that on, and there's kind of a cliff on one side, and then there's kind of a ditch on the other. It's the side of a mountain you're going down. And as I, as I skidded around the corner, I was facing the cliff and starting to head that way, kind of lost control. So I turned the wheel the other way and ended up overcorrecting and heading towards the ditch. And this whole way I'm kind of sliding fishtailing. 
well, I don't want to go in the ditch either because that's not going to be good for me. So then I overcorrect the other way again and end up on the side of the cliff. Now, maybe cliff is a little extreme. There's trees and stuff there, but it's still not a great place to park your car. <laughs> and so I stop. My heart's beating really fast. I take a deep breath. Okay, calm down. I'm still alive. Everything's okay. Let's put it in reverse and back up. Put it in reverse, and the front tires just spin and spin and spin. I'm not going anywhere. And there's no cell phone service up there. There's nobody around. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm miles away from camp at this point. How am I going to get myself out of this situation? So I get out and I try to, you know, try to get the wheels free, try to figure this out, but there's, there's no way I can get out on my own. So luckily, another truck comes the other way. And he has a tow chain, and he kindly enough agrees to pull me out. And so he hooks onto the back. I end up getting pulled free. But in the process, there's like a dust cover right underneath the front bumper that kind of keeps the underneath of your car um, cleaner, protects it. That gets ripped off. It's just a rubber piece, but it got ripped off. I thought, well, I, I don't want to just leave that here. So I went and stuffed it in the trunk and headed home. Nobody has to know about this. Nobody has to find out about my stupid teenage mistake. I can get home and everything will be okay. So I get home late that night and my mom's there and she decides to be nice and help me unpack the car. She goes to the trunk. She's like, she pulls out this big rubber, you know, plastic piece. She goes, Ryan, what is this? Why is this there? Oh, that's always been like that. So I, I lied to her. I didn't, I didn't want her to find out about what I had done because I knew what I had done was not right. It was stupid. It was dangerous. I shouldn't have done that. I don't want my mom to find out about it. <clears throat> she wasn't convinced. I, I thought she was convinced at the time. She wasn't convinced. But then another thing happened. So that night that I went home was also pizza night up hunting. So my dad and my uncle would drive down into town to get pizza. And on their drive into town, they saw some curious skid marks going around. Now, luckily, they didn't see a car in the bottom of the ravine or anything like that. They knew I was okay, but they could tell pretty clearly. They got out of the car. They took pictures. They could tell what had happened. My efforts to hide my sin from my parents didn't work. They found out anyways. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I cared more about trying to protect myself from embarrassment or getting in trouble than I did about the relationship that I had with my parents. How much better would it have been to just immediately have told my mom, I messed up, I was acting stupid, this is what I did, forgive me. And how quick would she have been to be glad that I was still alive and forgive me, and yet I was just focused on myself. Verses 1 and 2 here present the blessing of forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered not by me, but by God who covers my sin. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He doesn't count our sin against us. In whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no lying. There's no trying to cover it up. There's no trying to prevent God from knowing about this sin. We're free. We're open with it. How, what a blessing it is to have that relationship with God. So we see the blessing of verses 1 and 2 and how wonderful it is to have that clear conscience, that unbroken relationship between us and God. 
But so often we live in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, not wanting to admit my sin. What happens? What does David describe here? What happens when we have unconfessed sin between us and God? He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Think about sickness. Have you ever had one of those sicknesses? This last spring, I got one of those like 24 or 48 hour flus. Like influenza, your body aches, it just hurts. And it, it, it's horrible. It feels bad. And in the moment, I mean, you can be a little dramatic, but it just feels like you're dying. And you feel so, un, you can't get comfortable. Even sleeping doesn't work. And you just, you feel like you're wasting away. David says that's what it feels like when he doesn't confess his sin. He feels God's heavy hand upon him. There's a certain amount of of guilt that we can put on ourselves, but there's also a guilt that God can put on us, that we feel it bearing down on us. He says his strength is dried up as by the heat of the summer. How much does that apply even to today? It's supposed to get over 100 degrees in Vancouver today. And have you ever felt, especially that, that 100 degree mark, when it gets over that, you go outside and you feel weak. You just feel like, I got to get out of this heat. I can't do anything. And that's what he describes it feels like to have this unconfessed sin before him and God. To not be forgiven for sins, this is what it feels like. So, We have these two situations. One is a blessing, one is a curse. The blessing is to be forgiven for our sins. The curse is to not be forgiven for our sins. So what do we do about it? How do we fix that problem? How do we live in verses 1 and 2? Verse 5 gives gives us the simple answer. And actually, I really love verse 5. Because this is the main idea of the whole passage. And it's so simple and straightforward. This is what David says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Very simply, he says, how do we we live in verses 1 and 2? Confess your sin to God. And what happens when we confess our sin to God? He will forgive us. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice here, this, this term comes up a lot in this, in this psalm, uh, the covering, hiding. In the second line of verse 5, I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't cover it up. I didn't try to hide it. I let God cover it. And that's what it means to confess our sin to God to allow him to deal with it, and then to be forgiven for our sins. Now, this works actually on two levels, and it's important to point that out today. Briefly, I want to mention the big picture. We're going to spend more time in in the details of it, in the everyday life of this. So the big picture is we think about confession, and we think about forgiveness of sins. We often go to our eternal salvation. We think of being saved by God through Jesus' blood, through Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, we're saved. And it is essential, in order to be saved, it is essential that we confess our sin to God. Now, some of you, that might raise up a red flag right there. You're going, what are you trying to say, Ryan? Are you trying to say that you have to do something for yourself in order to be saved? But give me a moment. Let me explain myself. 
What I'm saying is that if you don't admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, how can you receive, receive the free gift of God's grace? First, we must confess in general that we are sinners in need of a Savior in order to receive the free gift of God's grace in our life. And so there's, that's the big picture application here. And it, and it comes in our eternal salvation. That when we recognize that we're sinners, we admit, we acknowledge that we are sinners, then we can believe that Jesus died on the cross for those sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to give us a relationship with God and eternal life with him. So that's the big picture. That's the gospel message. But I think what Psalm 32 is, and, and actually, sorry, that's what, when Paul quotes this chapter, when he quotes the first two verses of this chapter in Romans chapter 4, that's what he's talking about. In Romans 4, he's talking about how we're not made righteous by our works, we're made righteous by our faith. We're declared righteous because of our faith. And then he says, what a blessing it is to be forgiven for our sins. Well, that's the big picture. But today I want to focus, I want to spend more time on the everyday experience of the forgiveness of sins between us and God. Because this isn't just a legal standing, it is. There's justification, we have a legal standing before God. But we also have a restored relationship with God. And so this, our sin and confession and forgiveness, affects our day-to-day relationship that we have with God. When we sin, we're putting a barrier between us and God. When we neglect our relationship with him, we're putting a barrier between us and God, and that affects our relationship. When I'm living in the midst of sin, when I'm living in sin in my life, guess what? I don't really want to pray. I don't really want to read my Bible. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to spend time with him. And, and sometimes I want to try to justify myself and be like, it's not that big of a deal, but the signs are all there. It's very clearly, I can see how my sin affects my relationship with God. So how do we confess our sins? Verse 6 tells us that. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Very simply, David says, pray. That's where we confess our sins is in prayer to God. We pray to him. We confess our sins. And this whole thing about the water here is saying, do it now before it's too late. The water represents the chaotic waters of death. A lot of times we'll, we'll kind of think about our sin and we'll go, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I'll confess that sin tomorrow because I kind of want to keep doing it today. So I'll deal with that later. And David's saying, no, don't wait for tomorrow. Confess your sin to God today, now. Experience that right relationship with him now. <clears throat> now, I don't know where you're at with this. This idea of admitting your sin to God, of confessing your sin to God, there's probably some of you who have a daily habit of confessing your sin to God. There's probably some of you have, who have never really thought to confess your specific sins to God. And this is something that I realized even just a few years ago, that this idea of confessing my sin to God on a regular basis should be a part of my daily prayer life. And so I started doing that. I, started, I made it a part of my daily prayer life to confess my sins to God. The ones that were significant, the ones that I could remember, I'm going to confess that each morning when I pray. But it didn't go very well. And the reason why is because my confession time of prayer took about three seconds. It goes like this. Dear Lord, I did this thing wrong. Please forgive me. Anyways, move on. And... I was going through the motions, but I didn't really know what it really meant to confess my sin. 
Now, sometimes the prayer would take a little bit longer, but usually it's because I would start trying to justify my sin. I would go, dear Lord, here's what I did wrong, but, well, you know, I didn't really mean it. It wasn't malicious. I didn't really mean it that way. It wasn't that bad. Actually, so-and-so does worse things over here, so, you know what, never mind. I won't confess that sin. I'm, I'm being a little over the top with this, but that's kind of how it went. And Part of confession, the expectation that comes with confession is repentance, that we actually turn away from our sin, that we stop doing those same sins over and over. And I wasn't experiencing that because I found myself confessing the same sins the next day. And it wasn't until a few months ago I read a book called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson that really helped me to understand what true repentance was and really how to really confess your sin. And so I actually want to take a pause right now where we're at in this, because it relates so well to what we're talking about in Psalm 32. To walk through, as he lays out in that book, the six steps of repentance, I want to walk through that. And actually, your sermon notes, if you flip them over to the back, I've got them all laid out there for you. We're not going to go through every detail, but I want to give that to you to go home and consider these different things. And if you took my spiritual life class um, this last spring, you, you're, these are familiar to you already. The first step of repentance is sight of sin. Watson says, before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. If we're going to ever repent and admit our sin to God, we first have to admit it to ourselves. We first have to see what we've done is wrong. And along with each of these, I came up with a question for each one. And actually, I did that because as I went through this, I thought, man, this would be really good for my kids. How do I teach my kids the six steps of repentance besides just talking about it? So I thought, what if I came up with a question for each, and I could actually, when they do something wrong, I could actually walk through it with them and go through these six questions. And you know what? It turns out this was actually really helpful for myself as well. So the first question here is, what did I do wrong? Sometimes we really neglect this first step. We don't actually consider in detail, what did I actually do wrong? And as we talk about this, I actually want to take another pause because this brings up another really important question that we need to consider. What is sin? We've been talking about sin all morning. We're going to keep talking about sin. And yet, what do we really mean when we say that? We often think about sin in legal terms, that I've broken one of God's laws. I've done something against God's law. And maybe we even think about sin as idolatry, kind of that 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 main sin that covers all sins is, is idolatry, is, is preferring anything else instead of God, putting anything else in front of God in our lives. And so we'll often think about sin that way, but it often leaves our sin kind of abstract. And we often treat our sin, when we're thinking about it that way, like if we break a government law. Think about breaking the speed limit and if I, break, if I go five miles over the speed limit, technically I'm breaking the speed limit, but no one got hurt. It's not really that big of a deal. There's no problem between me and the government. Even if I get a ticket for that, I can pay the ticket and I'm, I'm clean, I'm off free. Between me and the government, there's no broken relationship there. It's fine. I'm not worried about it. I don't really care. Too often, we view our sin that way between us and God. And yet this morning, I want you to think about your sin in relational terms. I want you to think about the relationship that you have with God and how our sin affects the relationship we have with him. One of our elders, Dave Brown, 
describes sin, one of his definitions of sin is a loss of shalom. That word shalom, maybe you've heard it before, it comes from the Old Testament from Hebrew. We often translate it as peace, but it's, it's much more holistic than just peace. It's prosperity and success. It's a, it's a very wholesomeness kind of thing. To have shalom with someone is to have a right relationship with them, to be close to them, to have nothing between you and that other person. And so sin is what breaks up that shalom. It's what causes no, it's what stops shalom in that relationship that I have with someone else. And I want you to think about a relationship that you have, a close one. Maybe it's a close friend, a parent, a child. Maybe it's a spouse, a husband or wife. What are the kinds of things that cause a break, that cause a problem in that relationship? I think about my relationship with my wife. And there are certain things that I could do that, in a sense, would break the law of, of our vows that we took, right? When we got married, we took certain vows. And so if I'm looking at that as the law of our marriage, there are certain things I could do that would, that would break that, break those vows. I, I promise to be with her till death, till death do we part. And so if I just get up and leave and I, and I move to a different town and I be with someone else, that would cause a loss of shalom in our relationship. There's no question, Right? Like, that's obvious. Of course, there would be a break. You would not have a good relationship anymore. And my wife could actually point to our our vows and say, you broke our vows. That's why our relationship is broken. And yet, that's kind of the extreme example. What about the day-to-day stuff? Just the little things. Or maybe I say something inconsiderate to her. Or maybe I, I, I ignore her and I go do my own thing. Maybe I make a selfish decision in the family, something that helps me but doesn't help her, doesn't help the rest of the family. Now, maybe she can't point to one of our vows and say, you broke our vows, and yet I still have broken that relationship that I have with her. And it's not about the law of our marriage that I care about. It's if I really love my wife, I don't want to cause a problem between me and her. How much better is it to have a good relationship with her? That's the way that we should view our sin before God, is anything that would cause a problem between us. Not not just breaking his clear laws that he's given us, but but also this idea of even just neglecting my relationship with him puts something in between me and God. What did I do wrong? That's that sight of sin. The second step of repentance is sorrow for sin. The question I like to ask here is, why was it wrong? And that really gets to the heart of, of the sin. It's not just, well, I broke, I, I did something wrong, I confess it, forgive it. Transa- it's not transactional. This gets to that relational aspect of it. Really, why was this wrong? Something I thought would be a good exercise is to just go through the Ten Commandments and, and see why each one of those is an offense against God. Not just because he said so, but really, why does this break our relationship with God and our relationship with other people? That's the sorrow for sin, getting to the bottom of it, really feeling sorry for it because we understand why it was wrong in the first place. The third step of repentance is confession of sin. This is what we're talking about this morning, confessing our sin to God. The question I like to ask here is, who do you need to admit your sin to? There's always at least one person, and that's God. Sometimes we also need to confess our sin to others, people that we've wronged, or sometimes it's just helpful to confess our sins to others that they can keep us accountable But we must confess our sin to God. Number four is shame for sin. 
Now, as we talk about shame, we typically talk about shame in a negative way. We say that you shouldn't feel shame, right? Jesus died for your shame, and that certainly is true. He died to cover our shame. But it actually can be helpful for even just a moment to feel the shame for our sin. Are you embarrassed by what you did? To feel that embarrassment for what I did, that helps me in this process of repentance. It helps me to see my sin for what it really is. Number five is hatred for sin. Do you hate your sin? I think this is probably the hardest one. And we never want to admit that we don't hate our sin, but deep down so often, this is really the one that we get hung up on. We can admit these other things, we can dig deep into it, but when it comes to number five, do I really hate my sin? Because if I really hated it, I wouldn't keep doing it. This, as we talk about this, really what we're, we're not talking about unintentional sin here. We're not talking about kind of a one-off, I did this sin, I don't even know why I did that, that was silly, I'm not going to do it again. The kind of sins we're talking about here are what we call besetting sins or beloved sins. And I, I hate that term, beloved sin, but it's so true. These are the sins that are deep down inside that we just, we just want to hold on to. We, just, we don't want to give them up. We don't want God to take them away from us. As much as we want to want him to take them away, secretly we love them and we want to hold on to them. I heard a good illustration. I think it was actually about something else, but it, it's so vivid. It's like a toddler that doesn't want their diaper changed. Isn't that it's so, like, come on, why would you not want your diaper changed? And they go, yeah, but it's warm and it's mine. <laughs> how disgusting is it that I have sins that I want to hold on to? Despite seeing how destructive and messed up they are, I still love them. But if I'm really going to repent, if I'm really going to turn from my sin, I have to learn to hate my sin. And the other four steps before that, they help you in the process of learning to hate your sin. And then we get to number six, turning from sin. The question I like to ask here is, are you planning to do this sin again? And you know, no one ever says yes out loud, do they? When I talk to my kids about this, are you planning to do this again? Of course, the answer is going to be no. It's not always true, but it does force us to be honest with ourselves. Because if I'm already planning to do this sin again, then I really haven't truly repented of it. I really truly haven't sorrowed for it, felt the shame and hatred for it that I'm supposed to. Because if I do, then I won't want to turn back to that sin. And like I said, walking through those steps for especially those difficult sins in my life was very helpful for me. It's not some magic formula that works every time, but it's a helpful process. And really what it does, there's, there's two parts to Psalm to what we're learning in Psalm 32 today. And the first part is to see our sin for what it really is. If we don't see how bad our sin is, then we won't experience how wonderful the forgiveness of Christ is. And so we have to start there. We have to see our sin for what it really is. And these six steps help us to see how horrible our sin is, how much our sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. And that leads us into verse 7. I mentioned earlier that verse 5 is the main idea of the passage, but verse 7 is my favorite, and you'll see why as we dig into this. Verse 7 says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me from shouts of deliverance. Now, this psalm was written by King David, and we don't know exactly when he wrote Psalm 32. However, 
the principles that we learn out of Psalm 32 apply directly to the application, to the practice that he does in Psalm 51 when he confesses to God his sin, the whole Bathsheba sin situation. And these three lines in verse 7 here, I think we can actually map those onto that story of him and Bathsheba, and they help us to really see how verse 7 is not our natural response when we sin. Verse 7 is usually the opposite of how we think of responding to our sin. So let's walk through how, how David doesn't do verse 7 initially with the sin of Bathsheba. As many of you know, one spring... During the time when the kings would typically go out to, bab- out to battle, David stayed home. And one late afternoon, he was walking on his roof, and he looked out, and he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And so he sent one of his people to go and to get her. And they brought her to him. And he knew, he already knew when they brought her to him, that she was married. And yet, despite that, he still spent the night with her. He sent her home the next day, and David's not worried about it. The first line in verse 7 says, You are a hiding place for me. And yet, David wasn't going to God to be his hiding place. He was going to hide his sin himself. You see, this is easy. Her husband's off away at battle. No one has to know about this. He can hide his sin away. There's no problem. But then a few weeks later, he gets a letter in the mail. It says, I'm pregnant. And now he knows there's a problem. Because now he can't keep this hidden anymore. Someone's going to find out about it. Her husband's going to come home. He's going to do the math. He's going to know that this is not his child. So David comes up with a plan. Because of line two here, you preserve me from trouble. He's not going to God to preserve him from trouble. He's got to keep himself out of trouble. He sees trouble on the horizon. He's got to protect himself from trouble. So he comes up with a plan. He sends for the woman, for Bathsheba's husband, for Uriah, under the pretense of getting news of the battle. So he comes, he tells him the news, and then David just makes a suggestion. Hey, you're tired. You know what? You don't need to go back tonight. Why don't you go home to your wife, spend a night there, and then you can go back tomorrow. This is his plan. It'll make it look like it's Uriah's child. There's no problem. He can cover up his sin. He can keep himself out of trouble. There's no problem. But it doesn't work. In an ironic twist, we find out that Uriah is more honorable than David in this moment. He says, how can I go home to the comfort of my wife when these men are out fighting a battle? And he sleeps on David's front porch. David tries again the the next night, but it still doesn't work. Uriah won't go home. The last line here, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is talking about God's salvation. Shouts of deliverance is God's salvation. And yet, instead of David going to God for his salvation, he's going to try and save himself. He's going to try and save himself at the cost of another man's life. And so he sends Uriah back to the battle, carrying a death sentence in his own hands. It's a letter to the commander of the army. It tells him to put Uriah at the front of the battle, advance forward into the heat of it, and then withdraw, leaving Uriah behind. And it works. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and he thinks this is all worked out. He's hidden his sin. He's preserved himself from trouble. He has saved himself. And yet there was one thing here that he wasn't thinking about, one factor that he didn't consider, and that was that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. 
Now, he did. He certainly did sin against them. But really, his sin was against the Lord. And so God is going to call him out on it. He sends his his prophet Nathan to come, to accuse him, to rebuke him for this sin. And right in the midst of feeling so yucky about King David, and this is not a good thing, this is not a thing that a good guy does, like why would he do this horrible thing? And yet the way David responds when he's called out for sin, for his sin, is exactly the right way he should respond. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We see now David going back to what he learned in Psalm 32 and applying it to this situation, to confess his sin to God and to receive forgiveness. And he is forgiven by the Lord for what he did. And what I love about verse 7 is that it's, it's just upside down. It's the total opposite of how we usually approach sin. When we sin, we want to hide it so that we can keep ourselves out of trouble, so that we can save ourselves. And yet what it tells us right here to, that's true, what we should do, is we should view God as our hiding place. Rather than hiding our sin, we should run to God and hide from our sin in God, that he will actually cover over our sin, and he will be the one to hide it. That we should run to him to preserve ourselves from trouble rather than trying to keep ourselves from trouble. Trust him to protect us. And that last line, that we should run to him because he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. God is our salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Now I want to be clear here, that doesn't mean that there's not natural consequences to sin. We've all experienced natural consequences to sin even when we have confessed and repented of our sin. But what we see here is that God's wrath will not be poured out on us when we run to him for help. When we run to him in the midst of our sin, right after I've sinned, as soon as I can, run to him and hide myself in him and let him deal with my sin. Now David knew this was true all the way back then. And yet how much more true is this for us today? David had to look forward to someone who was going to deal with the problem of his sin, but we look back to someone who has already dealt with our sin. God is our hiding place because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Because he took our sins upon himself on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, suffered the wrath of God for us so that we could have a restored relationship with God and be with him forever. Because of Jesus, we can hide ourselves in God. Because of Jesus, God preserves us from trouble. Because of Jesus, he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. He has saved us. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered by Jesus. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit because of what Jesus has done for us. 
I want to remind us here of what's the big picture that we're talking about in Psalm 32. There's two things, confession and forgiveness. Confession teaches us how bad our sin really is. It teaches us that it is something that needs to be dealt with. It is a problem in our lives. And the more that we understand how wrong our sin is, the more we experience and understand how wonderful the forgiveness of Jesus is for us. And that's what I want all of you to see this morning. The true nature of our sin and the wonderful joy of being forgiven in Christ for all that we've done because of what he did for us on the cross. And I want to remind us to think about this relationally, not just legalistically. There's a legal truth to it, but there's a relational truth to it as well. And that's really the everyday experience that we have in our relationship with God. Verses 8 and 9 say this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. How do you train an animal? Think about a dog or a horse even. How do you train it? Mainly you train an animal like that with pain and reward. If they do something wrong, you give them pain, and it teaches them not to do that wrong thing. If they do something right, you give them reward, and it teaches them to do that thing. You can actually train an animal very, very well. It's, it's incredible how well animals can be trained through that simple process. But the animal never understands why. They don't understand why doing that thing is wrong and doing that thing is right. They don't understand the relationship. I mean, certainly there is a love that animals have for their owners. I'm not going to say that that's not true. But they don't understand how their actions affect their owner. There's not a real close relationship going on there. And what David's saying here is, is that we don't want to be like that with God. This isn't just a, oh, that hurt, I guess I won't do it again. Oh, that worked out well, I guess I will do that again. That's not supposed to be our relationship with God. If our desire really is to be close to him, and, and what a miracle it is that we can have a close relationship with the God of the universe because of what Jesus has done for us. And because of that miracle, my desire then becomes more and more that I want to honor and glorify him with my life. I want to follow him. I want to please him. I want to have a close relationship with him. And if that's truly the case, then whenever that sin gets in the way, because it will, I have not been freed completely from the power of sin in my life. I have not been freed from the presence of sin in the world, and so I will continue to sin, and that will continue to put barriers between me and God in my everyday relationship with him. But when I have that right view of myself and of God, then my desire is to confess my sin immediately, to run to him and say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. Will you forgive me? And God's arms are open wide, ready. In verse 5, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't wag his finger. He doesn't say, if you do this and this and this, then maybe I'll forgive you. He forgives our sin because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So we need to understand this relationally, the relationship that we have with God. And I think that's why it's helpful to return to that illustration of a close friend or parent or especially a spouse. <clears throat> when Jill and I were first married, we both had the same problem. When we would do something against each other, right, when we would make the other one mad, um, well, when, when I would make her mad, she would withdraw. She wouldn't talk to me about it. She wouldn't come to me and say, hey, that hurt, what you did was wrong, can we work this out? She would just take a step back, start acting cold towards me. 
I would do the same thing to her. If I felt hurt by her in some reason, I would avoid her. I would ignore her. And maybe subconsciously the idea is that like, oh, she'll notice that, you know, that clearly something's wrong and then she'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. What did I do wrong? But when you're both like that, guess what happens? It just gets worse and worse. I notice her being cold towards me, so what do I do? I start acting cold towards her. I start not talking to her. And pretty soon, we've spent the last three hours ignoring each other and acting like nothing's wrong, but we know that something's wrong, and we're not dealing with it. That's a broken relationship. That's not a good relationship between a husband and wife. And I want to say, I have seen growth in my own life the last 11 years. I've become a better husband. Christ has been working in me and making me more like him, and she'll attest to that too. I'm not just saying that. Um, I've learned more about her. The more I know her, the more I know the things that I should say and shouldn't say, the way I should act and not act, the way I can be a good husband, I've learned those as well. But you want to know the number one thing that's helped our marriage? It's not sinning less. It's being much quicker to repentance, to confession, to forgiveness. That cycle is much shorter now in our relationship. We're much quicker to say, hey, let's deal with this right now before we waste the next three hours. This actually happened just a week ago. Last Sunday, I said something um, kind of insensitive, hurtful towards her, um, and I could tell she didn't receive it well. It was kind of just me being a jerk. And um, I could tell she didn't receive it well, but I was kind of like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm allowed to say that. That's fine. Like, it's not a big deal. And um, so my thought was, if she has a problem, she can come to me about it. She can talk to me and she can bring it up. But, but I'll, I'll make my stand. I didn't actually do anything wrong. That doesn't help the relationship. This isn't about the law that I broke. This is about how can, I, how can we have a good relationship together? To have a wonderful, loving relationship between a husband and wife is one of the best things in the world. Don't I want that all the time? And so I spent probably about... 20 minutes struggling with this in my mind last Sunday because I wanted to be stubborn. I wanted to be selfish. I didn't want the humility of having to confess my sin to her and ask for forgiveness. But I'm thankful because the Holy Spirit really convicted me of it and said, Ryan, do you really want to waste the next three hours of your relationship with your wife? And that's really, you know, I don't want to minimize the legal aspect of sin. But when we understand it more relationally, we we get that, like, why would I want to waste this time that could be spent in wonderful marital union being mad at each other because of something stupid that I said? Why do I want to keep hiding my sin from God and keeping him at arm's length when I could have this wonderful, loving relationship with my creator? And so I went to her because I didn't want to waste that time, and I said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And... It wasn't perfect. We had to still work through it. It wasn't magically everything's wonderful. We had to talk. We had to spend a little bit more time working it out. But it was so much quicker than the three hours that it used to take years ago. And, and that really is the point of this psalm here. Is the psalm isn't telling us to, to not sin. Now, don't get me wrong. God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. I'm not going to tell you just sin as much as you want because then for, you keep getting forgiven and it's wonderful. That's not what I'm saying. But what this psalm isn't saying here is sin less. It's saying repent sooner. Go to God immediately. Stop wasting time trying to sit in your sin and justify yourself and keep him at arm's length. Go to him. Be with him. Confess your sin and he will forgive 
the iniquity of your sin. Repent sooner. The last two verses here, verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. The wicked here aren't just sinners. As we've seen earlier, we're all sinners. The wicked are the ones who don't confess their sin and admit their sin to God and receive forgiveness. And they have sorrow. Don't be like the wicked. Instead, confess your sin to God. And what happens when we do that? Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And I love that he uses the word trust there. He doesn't say steadfast love surrounds the one who confesses his sin to the Lord. But he interchanges it, and we see that connection between trust and confession. There's there's a connection between trust and obedience. When I trust God, I want to do what he says. I want to follow him. But when I break that trust, when I go against what God has said, when I put a barrier between myself and God, then I have another opportunity to trust him. Do I trust him with my sin? Rather than trying to deal with my sin on my own, do I trust that he has already dealt with it through Jesus' death on the cross? And when I do trust him, I'm surrounded by his steadfast love. And that's, that's something that we can experience day by day. And I don't know if you've experienced that before, if you've really felt that, but being surrounded by the steadfast love of God only happens when we have a clear conscience before him. When we have confessed our sin to him and received and believed the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus. And when we do that, then verse 11, we're glad in the Lord. We rejoice, oh righteous. We, we feel, not just we know that we're righteous, we feel our righteousness before God. Because he knows everything about us and he's loved us anyways. We shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The point The main thing this all boils down to today is that when I do sin, I need to go to God immediately to confess my sin and trust him to deal with it because it's already been dealt with through Jesus on the cross. There's no point to try to hide it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. You have given us eternal life in you and that when we believe, when we admit that we're sinners and we believe in Jesus, that we have that eternal life in you, only you can give us. And yet, Lord, we recognize that that eternal life starts today. It starts now, that we have a relationship with you. We have a closeness to you that is only made possible by Jesus. And what a wonderful blessing that is. And yet, God, even day, day by day, we turn away from you. We put distance between ourselves and you through our sin. We hide ourselves from you. We try to solve things on our own. And I pray that everyone here this morning would be convicted of the times and the ways that they do that, that I do that, Lord, and see the need to come and to confess again our sins, to be reminded of the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus and the wonderful joy of the relationship that we have with you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.